Thank you, Fred. Okay, well, we continue our study in the, in the book of Isaiah, and we're in this very important area. They're all, it's all important, but we're in this area, um, what, what's called the suffering servant, or the servant of the Lord, and it breaks down into these song kind of segments, and of course it ends up, once you come to Isaiah 50, 52, and 53 is the famous uh, suffering servant, the Messiah. You know, we're going to see that as we move along. Um, but we were in uh, chapter 40 and then 41, and God is presenting why Israel should believe in him, why Israel should obey him, why Israel should uh, keep the covenant. And if they don't do that, he said, you're going you're gonna to suffer. Now, there could be famine, uh, there could be all kinds of things, but one of the things, the last straw, would be they go into captivity. So the people are in captivity. This particular message that he's speaking to is when they're in Babylon, uh, but the, the prophecy, the hope is they're coming back. They're going to come back out. God's going to deliver them out of Babylon, and we're going to see that. But he says, believe me, because I've done it in the past. He, he kind of cites Exodus experience, but he says, I'm the creator. You'll hear this refrain. He says, I'm the creator. I stretched out the heavens. I created... But he'll also make this claim, if you look at chapter 40, um, verse uh, 21, well, uh, actually, yeah, 21, he says, uh, verse 40, 20, verse 20, have you not known, have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understand from the foundation? In other words, haven't you heard, I'm the one that declares this, I'm the one who is... Uh, uh, calling you and predicting what's going to happen to you. And when you turn to chapter 41 and you look at verse 21, starting with 21 through 23, he makes this same kind of uh, challenge. He says in chapter 41, verse 21, he says, present your case, says the Lord, bring forth your strong reasonings, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring forth and show us what will happen future, right? Show us, tell us now what's going to happen uh, in the future. Let them show the former things what they were, that we might consider them, and know the latter end of them, or declare to us what? Things to come. In verse 23, show the things uh, that are to come hereafter, that we might know that you are God's, Yes, do good or do evil, that we may be dismayed and see it together. What's he saying here? It's like a challenge he's presenting to all the uh, false idol-worshipping uh, systems that they're believing in, to these false gods. What's the challenge God is putting to his people here, in your own words? He's saying, tell it to me now, so when it comes to pass, we'll know that you're God. We'll know. Okay, this is a very important, why is this so important today? It's always been important, but why in our particular world today? Huh? The best? Oh, the mess. Oh, oh, I, I couldn't hear you. Well, it, it goes like this. Okay. We talked about this early on. Everybody has what's known as a worldview, a religion, a philosophy, Okay, it often tries to address questions like origin, is life that mean, uh, does it, what, is there certain rules of morality, and destiny. What happens when I die? Nearly all your major religions
some degree, try to answer these questions. Origin, meaning, morality, destiny. But all worldviews are based on what? Are based on what? Your point of view or? Uh, it's based on a, a, a source of authority. What might be the source of authority? The Bible. The Bible, what else? Science. Science. Media. Science actually, it may answer this, but it doesn't generally, it's kind of neutral. And, you know, I mean, science will answer origin, but even destiny, it's, it's but, but men base their lives on science, but they're not answering some of these good questions. The Quran. The Quran. 1.3 billion people on planet Earth get their worldview from the Quran. Yeah. <laughs> India, Bhagavad Gita. Is it the Vedas? Is it not? Okay. Okay. Scientology. What's their book? Dianetics by L. Ron Hubbard, science fiction writer, 1952. What if somebody says, well, I don't have a religious book. I don't base my worldview on anything. What's their source of authority? Themselves. Which is the worst source of authority. That's why the Bible says, lean not to your own understanding. There is a way that seemeth right to man, source of authority, but the ends thereof are destruction or death. So what you want to do when we teach new missionaries you want to, when you go to a place, you want to determine what the people's worldview is, but more importantly, in a sense, where are they, what is their source of authority? Now, what makes this so unique? What is so unique about the Bible, as opposed, and we're not attacking the Quran or the Vedas or the, uh, you know, the Analects of Confucius or something like that. What is so unique about the Bible? Because if you can prove source of authority true, that would, by implication, make what about the worldview? True. Does that make, does that follow? What makes the Bible, people say, well, the Bible, the Quran, this book, to that book, they're all, you know, we live in a post-Christian, but we also live in a post-modern world where your truth might not be my truth, and his truth is your, you know, it's like a, we're in a free fall here. What makes the Bible unique or different? Okay. We have a dual source, okay? We have Old Testament, we have New Testament, separated by 400 years, and these two must couple together, tongue and groove. That's why, again, when you study how Jesus makes his claims, Luke chapter 24, all the way through, how the sermons in the book of Acts go, how Paul, they'll always pull the old to validate the person of Christ by using the Old Testament. No other religious source, no other religion or philosophy has that source of authority. Does that make sense? This is very important in our day and age where people say, well, that's true for them and this is true. Is there a standard of truth? And that's what God again and again is establishing. Uh, we see it repeated again and again in the book of Isaiah. Any questions on this or thoughts about this? It's quite more extensive when you get into it, but it's very important. What is, why do we think that this thus saith the Lord? Is that any, that, yes, please, George. Well, right. Right. No, I agree. 
Yeah, right. Of course, Jesus, I mean, Jesus will say heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word will endure forever. Uh, it, it's unchangeable, and its major themes are unchangeable. There is one God. And it doesn't change because It doesn't change. Exactly right. It's the, like, for example, in, in, in Islam, in the Quran, they have this thing called abrogation, where they can change it. They can, you remember, remember Salman Rushdie wrote the book, uh, Satanic Verses? Well, he was pulling those things out of the Quran, and I don't want to get into it, but they changed that they can alter it as things go along. Even some of the things concerning Muhammad's marriages. Same thing with Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon. What to, they, they changed several major doctrines that Joseph Smith established in the Book of Mormon. Do you remember what they were? 18, late 1890s, when Utah wanted to become a state, the federal government said you can't become a state if you continue what practice? Polygamy. And the sitting prophet, the head of the, he came up with a revelation and says no more polygamy. They became a state. The other thing was, who wouldn't they let into the priesthood? Black. Black. Uh, black. Until 1976, was it? And they got a revelation. Now they're, what I'm saying, we can't do that with the Bible. We can't. Now somebody like Jehovah's Witness can take it and rearrange and change words. That's corrupting the word. But I'm just saying as the word stands, we can't add another book. We can't take it. To, yes, Steve. They changed the Book of Mormon because originally it said that um, black people Yeah, I'm just saying, when the sources of authority, to your point, Charles, cannot be modified and cannot be changed to adjust to the culture or the particular time. It just can't. Uh, you know, that's... Somebody's well suggested, the word of God stays, we go. I mean, you know, we, it's not going to change. A hundred years from now, there you got the word of God. It's not decreasing in its influence and its, in its effect around the world. It's actually growing. Well, Solomon said, as you say, Fred, there's nothing new under the sun. And, you know, and the basic problem is still there. You have a holy God, sinful man, but God has provided a way we can be reconciled you know, and have a relationship. That, that, that's the theme all the way through. That arcs all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. Somebody else on in? Okay. Oh, yeah. I mean, you, you can show the Bible in terms of manuscript evidence or its historical referencing. It's, there's many ways, uh, objectively and subjectively, you can, you can see the transformed lives. You don't want to rely on subjective evidence, but that's a real thing. But if you look at the historical, that's why if you look at the New Testament, those are real places. It's not written in the language of mythology, long, long ago, far, far away. There was, you know, it's not like that. It's like so-and-so was the proconsul of Syria at that time. Or they went from Capernaum to Tiberias, and then they came a three-day's journey. And they, you know, it's really uh, uh, specific. It's locked in history. Okay, yes, Fred. Um, we get into the question of interpretation. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to keep the main things the main things. I think the one reason 
the gospel, Christianity, has gone around the world and into all different cultures and times is because it has a certain flexibility. Uh, somebody suggested in the core, it's, it's, it's unchangeable. But on the edges, it's, I mean, our style of architect, this church is different, which you're gonna find in central China, is different what you're gonna find in Morocco. Our worship, our music, um, do we take our shoes off when we come into worship? Those change, music style, instruments, no instruments, whatever. But there's certain things that can't change. Jesus says wineskins change, or old wineskins, the form, but the content, what is in there cannot change. The deity of Jesus Christ, the Trinity, his blood atonement, justification by faith, a coming judgment, heaven, hell. These, these can't, and that's what's happening to major denominations. They're not trying to change the wineskin or the form uh, they're trying to, they're actually trying to dilute the wine. Does that make sense? It's a very important point. Uh, we understand this. But when we go to Thailand, their, their style of worship, uh, it's different than here. Just like if you were to go to a church in uh, Pakistan or somewhere, it'd be very different. But the, the essential thing is they're preaching from this word, the person of Jesus Christ, the necessity that all of sin and come short of the glory of God. It's not based on how many good deeds we get that we're going to work our way to God. It's through grace, and then we should be people of good works. Those things have to be consistent. That's why it'll say in Jude, I think it's verse 3, contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And I think every generation has to affirm what we believe. And like I'm in this room today with my children and grandchildren, and they, they get it, and then God willing, they pass that down to the next generation. Okay, now I say, okay, pardon me. <laughs> We're moving along, folks. Okay. Um, now, this theme, this, some have called this the fingerprint of God or the watermark on the, on the Bible, but it's this idea of the prophetic. It says in Amos, surely the Lord will do nothing, but he first reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Uh, and again, this is very consistent from Genesis all the way through. And you see this early on in the book of Genesis, when God tells Abraham, I'm calling you, you're going to be a blessed person, a blessed family, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, how does that come true? He tells you're going to be a, a great nation, but your people are going to go into bondage for 400 years, but then they will be delivered. So early on, we see these prophetic uh, statements being made. God's telling ahead of time what's going to happen. And of course, we see this, uh, uh, this is where God says to Abraham uh, in Genesis 18, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Future, that's when uh, the angels were being dispatched to go to Sodom. He says, I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do. And again, New Testament, Jesus speaking. I'm telling you, he's speaking to his disciples here. I'm telling you now, present tense, before it happens, so that when it does happen, future tense, you will believe that I am who I am. You see? So one of the reasons the prophetic is so important, not only do we appreciate its fulfillment, but it has a capacity to strengthen our faith, especially in the person who Jesus Christ is. It's my belief that the more we understand this, the more our faith is strengthened, but more importantly, we realize who Jesus is. If we have a low view of Scripture, we can still believe in Jesus, but our faith may not be as strong as it could be if it's on that solid foundation. And it's much easier to share this with unbelievers than that if you know how firm a, most Christ, many Christians get shaken because they don't understand how firm a foundation our faith is. 
You see, it's, it, it, we can firm it up. That's why Paul, you study Paul wherever he goes, he, he can take on all oncomers. He just puts it out there. Boop, 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 boop. And it says people couldn't challenge him after a while. He's just laying it out. Because he was an Old Testament scholar. He was a rabbi. Again, Jesus will say this in John chapter 14. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. What did Jesus tell his followers that was coming? Okay, not only that he was going to die, but he told them how he was going to die. I'm going to be delivered up to the Gentiles, suffer many things, and be crucified. What else? His resurrection. Destroy this temple. I'll raise up again in three days. What else? Pardon me? The coming of the Holy Spirit. How about the temple? Not one stone will be left upon another. How about Jerusalem? How about Israel? When he looked right the week before his passion, when he looked over Israel, over Jerusalem, and what? He wept. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Therefore your house is left to you desolate. He said, not one stone will be left upon another. Those that have been to Israel, you know we saw that those, those, those temple stones 2,000 years ago still laying in the pavement, crushed into the pavement. His trial. Oh yeah, the, the believers, trials and tribulation. Um, yeah, uh, that Peter would deny him. You know, I mean, on and on again, he's making these statements, going back to the book of Isaiah, that this is one of the ways, if you need validation, there it is. Now, if somebody dismisses the word of God out of, okay, whatever. But I'm just saying, their source of authority is limited. It doesn't have what we have in the two-book system with that prophetic fulfillment. It's impossible. If you do this, you had to be out of space and time. We'll talk about this when I come back and uh, when we look again at the prophetic in Isaiah 52 and 53. But you, you, how do you do this, you know, unless you're out of space and time? Uh, again, in chapter 16, Jesus says, I have told you this, that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about them. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. So he, he's given them all this instruction so they're not going to be surprised when persecution comes and all this. He says, you won't be surprised. But then the other makes a prediction. He says, um, I will build my church upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, 2,000 years later, the church is still standing. It, it, it will stand. I mean, not because of our own efforts, but because Jesus declared it. It's based on the twin pillars of truth and love. It's not going to move. It, it might change how it looks, but that, those things are not going to move off-center, if I can say that. He, he said, remember the woman that the, put the perfume, broke the vessel, and put the, what did he say? Wherever this gospel is preached... They'll remember. 2,000 years later, when you read that passage, I think it's in uh, Luke, we remember that woman that did that, just as Jesus said, wherever this gospel is preached. So what I'm getting at is you'll see this all through the scripture, this idea of prophetic fulfillment. Um, so if you look at chapter 41, verse 23, uh, this same kind of thing is in play here. Uh, also, uh, 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 chapter, um, look at chapter 46 for a minute. I'll just show you this trend that's in... Uh, uh, chapter 46, 8 through 11. Chapter 46, Isaiah, 8 through 11. He says, Remember this and show yourselves men. Recall to mind, O you transgressors. 
Remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is no other like me. I am God, and there's none like me. Remember, Israel, the Jewish people, had a propensity to drift into other belief systems, false gods. He says, verse 10, why? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all of my pleasure. Bottom of verse 11, indeed I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass, I have purposed it, I will also do it. Okay? This is very powerful. I mean, in our world, if nothing else characterizes our world, it's change. Am I right? We're in a time of a tsunami of change, culturally, societal, movements of people and people groups, even in our own church. Change, change, change. Well, you get with the Word of God, it doesn't change. You know, it doesn't change. So it gives us stability in, in difficult times or changing times, does it not? Change. Change is here to stay. Okay. Somebody, you know, somebody well said, change is inevitable, except in vending machines. That's <laughs> Now, so we have this idea when we move through, uh, we look at this idea of the suffering servant. And this, these are actually songs, the way they're presented in the book. And we see now the presentation of the Messiah. Now, some of the, the servant references could be Israel. We're going to see that. And it, when it references Israel, there's negative connotations, like they're blind or they're wayward or they're not listening. But it presents the servant who God is well liked or beloved. It's presenting the one we would term the Messiah. It's this coming one, this coming one. And you'll see that. We'll start at chapter 42 today. Um, chapter 42, verse 1. Uh, it says, behold. You know, and whenever you see behold in the scripture, it's like, uh, it's almost like an announcement. You know, take heed or listen up. It's just like when John introduces Jesus at the River Jordan. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes, it's like an, a, a pronouncement. He says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, I will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, just based on that, that what does that harken back to? Just that, that declaration there. What does that put you in mind of? Behold my servant, who I, my elect one, whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. His baptism. Thanks. His baptism. Remember? This is my beloved son, whom I'm well pleased, and the dove is coming, descending upon him. And you see the picture of the Trinity. We'll look at this. Uh, when we gather again, Trinity in the book of Isaiah. But it's that idea, you see this, this, this coming one, and it says uh, a very important thing introduced here, he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Now, what we're going to see is again and again, when it references this particular Messiah, this figure, it says he's going to bring the good news to the Gentiles, or he's going to be a light to the Gentiles, or to the nations. This is this is really significant because up to this time, God has been dealing with who in generally? Jewish people, southern kingdom, northern kingdom. But it's been pretty much, now all of a sudden, this idea that Gentiles are going to get the light. The Gentiles are going to get the salvation. Is that just, oh, who is this coming one that's, that's going to do this? You see? And that's why you'll see Israel, when God brought Israel out of Exodus, they were to be a people separated under God, a kingdom of priests, 
and Jerusalem was going to be the center, and there would be a city set on a hill that nations would come to it and to inquire of the Lord and to learn about the living God and get rid of the false God and the belief systems. But they failed, okay, again, again. And then God, as you move through the scripture, he'll declare he's going to establish a new covenant. He's going to, he's going to provide a way. He's going, to, he's going to build on that old the covenant system, but he's bringing, there's a new way coming. There's a new and living way coming. You'll see that moving as we move through. And then he says here, uh, verse 2, this coming one, he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. Uh, who is, what does he say? What is the characteristics of this, this one that's coming? What is some of the characteristics? Huh? Humbleness. What does it mean when he says... Um, he will not cry out, raise his voice. Uh, verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoking flax he will not quench. Gentle. What, what, what does it mean, a, a, a bruised uh, reed? You know, if you had a, one that was almost, his, his walk is so gentle, it won't, and a, you ever see a, a flame flickering? He won't, his gentleness, he won't snuff it out. You see, it just speaks of humility and gentleness. And of course, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, Come unto me, all you labor and are heavy a burden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly. Hum, you know, this idea. He doesn't come like this. You know, we're in a dispensation of grace. Now, there's coming a day um, he comes back in his wrath. He comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords. It's called the great and terrible day of the Lord. We may cover that when we get to chapter 65 and 68. But now is the day uh, of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Uh, God's mercies are new every morning, and he is reaching out. And aren't you glad he dealt with you and me in a, <laughs> a merciful way, a gracious way, a long-suffering way? Am I right? That's what Jesus is yesterday. Yeah, and that's going to come out when we look at Isaiah 53. It says what? He was a lamb led to the slaughter, and he opened not his mouth. He went, you know, just like a lamb to the slaughter. He could have. I mean, really, he told Peter, he said, if I want, I could pray to my father right now, and what? He'd tell 12, 12 legions of angels. They'd scorch her at the place. I mean, you figure one angel wiped out a good part of the Assyrian army before breakfast. One angel. You know, what would 12 legions do? He says that's the kind of power he had. I mean, but all his power was kept under control, under uh, uh, for our benefit. Somebody has well said it wasn't nails that kept Jesus on the cross. Okay, it was his love for you and for me. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's one of the beauties of Christianity is that I. I know my sheep. I call them by name. And another they will, they know my voice. Another they, he, when he says, I know my sheep, you know, he knows us. The very hairs of our head are numbered. He knows our history. He knows our, 
you know, so you're right, Sue. That's the God we serve when, you know, when we see what he's given to us as part of our, if you will, our inheritance package uh, in salvation. Sometimes, sometimes people just stop at salvation, which is great enough, but there's so much more. He wants us to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here we see this, and then when you, when you come down, um, God again in verse 5, chapter 42, he declares he's the creator. He stretched out the heavens, the earth. He gives breath to people on it, the spirit of those. who he, He's declaring his deity in creation. But then he comes back and he says, verse 6 of chapter 42, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. So who is this coming one? This elect one of God, whose spirit is upon him. He's going to bring justice to the Gentiles. And then what does it say? You're going to be a light to the Gentiles. What does Jesus say? I think it's in John chapter 8. I am the light of the world. That, if anybody has a problem with the deity of Jesus Christ, and you watch his claims that he's doing, when, when you, have, you would never have a prophet of God like Moses or Elijah or Ezekiel saying, I am the light of the world. Or if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or I'm coming back on clouds of glory to judge the earth. Or I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, these are attributes of God. These are things only God can do. But Jesus is taking them for himself in his presentation to us in the Gospels. See? Again, to me, as we approach Christmas season, this is the biggest point, the biggest stumbling point uh, for unbelievers and critics is the deity of Jesus Christ. You know, so many people want to embrace him as a prophet, as a guru, as a revolutionary, as a uh, fill in the blank. In Buddhism, they call it a bodhisattva, like a saint, on and on and on. But he doesn't allow us that. You know, I've, I've talked to Muslims, and, and they revere Jesus. I'm talking about pious, but they never use his name in blasphemy, or, you know. But they, they, they say, I, we believe he's a high and holy prophet, born of the Virgin Mary, you know. But I says, if he's a prophet, he's a false prophet. They go, what? You know. <laughs> It's true. If he's a prophet and just a prophet, he's a false prophet. Yes? You know? Again, you can't make those claims he's making. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the last. And then when he forgives sins, Mark chapter 4, when he forgives sins, when they bring the crippled guy in, you know, into the, through the roof, and he says, the first thing he says, your sins are forgiven, and the response to the Pharisees and everybody was what? Only God can forgive sins. You're going to see that in Isaiah. Only God can blot out sins. And that's when Jesus says, what's easier for me to forgive sins or tell this cripple, Get, take your bed and walk. Take your bed and walk. You see, he, he doesn't leave us any space to, to, to say otherwise. And that's why you come to Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us, straight up. That's why I say at 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, without controversy, this is the greatest mystery of all. What is it? That God was manifested in the flesh. Greatest mystery of all. Any thoughts on this? Okay. Um, and then let's look what, in verse 7. What does he do, this one? Verse 7 says what? To open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I will not give to the other. 
and my praise to carve images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. So here's this one, beloved of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, light to the Gentiles, one who's going to establish a covenant. He's going to open blind eyes, deliver prisoners that are in bondage, and he's going to tell us, form, he's going to tell us things before they happen. Who might that be? Yes, sir. Yeah, right. Matter of fact, yeah, it's a good point. If you go to John chapter 15, verse 15, God says to his apostles, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. A servant does not know what the master's going to do, but I'm going to tell you now what's up, to your point, because you are now, we've entered in a different relationship here. You're my friends. That's why we have access now to these kind of treasures, really, I think. It, what the Bible reveals to us is powerful, very powerful. Somebody else had their hand up? I know. Okay. So here we see this coming one and this idea of the suffering Messiah. We're, we're starting to get the attributes of what he's like. And if you turn to Matthew chapter 12, um, you'll see this. And this is when the Pharisees are confronting him. He's well into the middle of his ministry now. And you look at uh, chapter 12, he says, uh, verse 14, Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and a great multitude followed him, and he healed them all. And he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, 700 years previous. What? <laughs> Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit. He will declare just to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in a bruised reed. So he's, he's, these religious leaders of his day are plotting to kill him, but he's showing that he is the one that was promised. He is in their midst. Not only that, he says he just healed the multitudes of many diseases, and this is the very thing Isaiah said he would do when he comes. The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the cripple will walk. So what they're doing, they have to go like this to the word of God to, to destroy him or to work out a plot. That, does that make sense? Uh, again, he's bringing the whole authority of the Old Testament and bringing it down just like that. Just like that. Yes? Right. You know, that's a good question, a good segue. Somebody asked last week uh, for a reading list about this kind of thing. I, 
here's what I got. I brought in a couple of my things. I didn't, I just was, uh, take a little break here. I'm not quite was selling, I make a little bit of money. But um, this guy is really interesting. I don't know if anybody heard of Herbert Locke here, but here he has all the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. It's an interesting book. I don't think he has all of them, but he's really good, you know. Um, this one, this is a rather new book, very powerful book presenting the, the deity of Jesus Christ. Putting Jesus in his place, the case for deity of Christ. How many sat in on any of Michael Shenigal's classes? This, this guy, he had it going up. I mean, he, that's his like avocation. He's an engineer by profession, but his thing is, you know, he gets, digs deep into the management. This is a very good book, presenting the deity of Jesus Christ. In the context of that culture, we don't realize 20 centuries later, when Jesus is making a statement, like in uh, John, uh, Matthew chapter 13, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, you know, we read that, okay, Jesus is, what does that mean to a Jewish audience in the first century for him to say he's the Lord of the Sabbath? I mean, that just blows the hinges off of, you know. A very good book. This one, uh, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament by Wright, is pretty good, pretty good book. Uh, if I, I didn't have time to, I don't know how deep you want to go, but if those are books written in the 19, 18th, 19th, 20th century about Jesus in the Old Testament. Now they go into the high detail. Uh, you have to, you know, but, uh, <laughs> that's how, but I'll show you a curious book. I picked this in my travels, and I don't know where I was at. It's like a part of a Dead Sea Scroll parchment. It's called The Messiah in Both Testaments. Uh, and here's, his, here's what he says. This is very interesting. Um, the, Bible has no, the Bible has no competitor. It's the only book in the world that contains genuine prophecy. Here's his challenge. Uh, we offer a $1,000 reward. I don't know when this book was written. We offer a $1,000 reward to anyone who can show that there is another book in the world beside the Bible that has genuine prophecy about the coming Messiah or can produce any Christ, living or dead, other than Jesus of Nazareth, who can fulfill even half of the many predictions in the Messiah. And he tells you where to send your pay, uh, argument to get $1,000. <laughs> but isn't that interesting? <laughs> uh, but, yeah, um, for me, it's been an advocate. I just like to study it because, it's, again, it's how Jesus, it's how Paul does it, it's how Stephen does it in Acts chapter 7, his famous sermon that cost his life. Uh, Peter does it. It's all through. And uh, it just goes to the fact our faith is so much firmer sometimes than I think we, we, and it's a great way to share our faith with Muslims, Jewish people. I find that oftentimes Muslims don't put much credibility on the New Testament, what they call the Injil. They call it prophet. But if you can show them Jesus in Exodus or Psalms or in uh, uh, Deuteronomy, or let alone Gen they, they're, I see it, they go, oh, okay, you know, they kind of, okay, let's look at that. Uh, and you don't argue it. Uh, my motto is let the word of God do the work of God. I just step back, you know, I'm not arguing it. But our evidence is just so boom, 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 strong, oh, very strong. Any thoughts on any of this? I'll start wrapping it up in just a couple minutes here. Okay, so here we get into this uh, idea. When you're in chapter 42, Verse uh, 16, uh, he says here, verse 16 of chapter 42, I will bring the, the blind by the way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. I will make no darkness light before them. This thing of blindness uh, is a very interesting study uh, in the scripture. Okay, when you study the scripture and then um, see how it relates in the Old Testament, 
Blindness was often a mark, uh, spiritually speaking, of people who had the inability to comprehend truth. If, they, if it says in Isaiah, the people were blind, uh, they, they don't understand the truth. Why? Because their eyes are blind and their ears are closed or they're deaf. You see, blindness often had that kind of connotation. And when it comes to uh, Jesus, uh, the deal is that when he comes, he will give sight to the blind. Now, he's going to give sight to the blind both physically and spiritually. Does that make sense? And when he comes, if you look in the Old Testament, do research, there's very few, um, perhaps, the only blindness I can see in terms of a miracle of blindness is uh, in uh, Second Kings with the Assyrian army, when they were blinded temporarily, and then they get their sight back. Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened when the sinners were banging on that door and wanting to get at the angels? Blindness. So blindness is a type of judgment. Blindness. And it's, it's a judgment on people that don't want to comprehend the truth, let alone walk in the light. Yes, Tim? Paul, I, yeah, I'm talking Old Testament. I'm just setting it up that, that when you look at the Old Testament, when you come into the New Testament, all of a sudden you see the light of the world has come, and you see this idea that um, he, he's a giver of light. Jesus is the light of the world. And of course, Paul, uh, when he struck down, in a sense, it's almost metaphorical of the nation of Israel, he's blinded, and then he's restored to his, he, sight is restored, and he sees the light, and he's, that same chapter, he's off preaching Christ, okay? But with Jesus, you'll see these miracles of the blind, literally, physically. Uh, they often thought blindness was a sign of sin, or God's judgment. That's why in chapter 9 of the Gospel of John, when they encountered the blind man, what did the apostles say? Was he blind? Did he sin, or was it his parents? Just like Job's friends. They're always looking for causality. He's like this because of that. You see, it's, it does, Jesus is neither, but that the glory of God might be displayed. But w when you look at these blind, uh, healing of the blind in the New Testament, it's very interesting. Even what we just looked at, Isaiah 16, he says, I will bring the blind by a way they did not know. I will lead them in paths they have not known. This is really kind of a curious uh, when you look at the New Testament, you'll see this idea. Look at Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. And what's interesting about Jesus in his healing miracles, he does them in different ways. Uh, one time, he just speaks to the, the man at Jericho. You're, you're here. You're going to get your sight. Another time, he puts saliva. Remember? Mud and saliva. He says, go wash in the pool of saliva. But in Acts chapter 8, Remember what we just studied in Isaiah. He'll lead the blind by the hand. He'll take them in a way they didn't know. Look at Matthew chapter 8. And look at verse 22. I, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 8. I'm just seeing if you're paid. Okay. Paid. I'm joking. Okay. You're sharp. Okay, good. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. Then he came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of town. Isn't that interesting? What did it just say by Isaiah? He'll take the blind man out and lead him into Christ. He could have just spoken it. That's what he did before. He's got a reason. I don't know the reason, but it, it does kind of fit in with what it just said in Isaiah. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands on him, and he asked if he saw anything. And of course, the man says, I see men as trees walk. He touched him again. He restored his sight. And then he says, don't tell anybody you did this. Go back into town.
But the idea, I like that he led him out of town blinded. He didn't know where he was going, but it's, it, it has that glint of what it says in prophecies where he'll lead him by the hand. Very touching. Um, but I'll stop here because when you look at this whole thing with blindness, it's a very interesting study, especially when you come to the uh, Gospel of John in chapter 9 with the blind man. Um, remember, Jesus heals him. He receives his sight, and people gather around him and says, how did this happen? How did this happen? And he says, I don't know, a man named Jesus. And then he, he, if he declares Jesus, what are they going to do to him? They're going to cast him out. It's interesting that he's going to be cast out of the temple, but in those times, if you were lame, leprous, or blind, you didn't have access to the temple. You know what I mean? So, so that's why you find the beggars in that on the outside, on the steps of the temple, begging in that. So not even his parents want to say, he's our son, he was blind, but now something's happened to him. Because they would be thrown out. This is going on in the world today. That government and religious figures, if you confess Christ, what's just happened in Pakistan now with that girl? Has anybody been following that story? She's not relenting. She says, no, I believe in Jesus Christ. Even Pastor Brunson, when he got in front of that court, the transcript said, he still declared that he was a believer in Jesus Christ and he was not going to change. They were going to imprison him for a long time. What I'm getting at is, when you confess Christ, things happen. Okay? And often in the world today, it's persecution. That's why Jesus will say in John chapter 16, there's coming a day when they will drag you out of the synagogue, they'll kill you, and what? Think that they are doing God's will. Sound familiar? Okay, so here we see the blind man, but when it, it says in uh, Matthew, uh, I'll close on this, but if you look at John chapter 9, um, he has the most, this guy is really, it's really, I like when there's like these little human indicators in the scripture, but it's, uh, they say, we know what happens, he says in verse 11, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, then the Pharisees come to him, and they want to know what happened. And then the Pharisees in verse 16 of John chapter 9 say, this man can't be from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others say, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? In other words, you do not have healing miracle of blindness in the Old Testament, particularly somebody born blind. You don't find it. And he says, uh, then they said to the blind man, what happened? And he, he, op he says, he opened my eyes. I, he's a prophet. Verse 18, but the Jews did not believe concerning him, the blind man, so they called his parents. The parents don't want to say because they'll be, they know what's going to happen. And they say, verse 21, we don't know how this happened. Um, he will speak for himself. They're pushing on him. For his parents feared these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. There'd be persecution. He's put out of the religious community. Therefore, the parents put it on him. He's of age. Let him say and then they say to him, give God the glory. We know this man, i.e. Jesus, is a sinner. And he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, one thing I know, what is it? Once I was blind. And now that's the shortest testimony of a person that encounters Christ. Once I was blind and now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he do it? And verse 27, I told you already, he says. Did you not listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples? This is a, bl this is a blind beggar, okay? He's in the temple region talking to Pharisees and scribes, and he's saying, didn't I tell you once? Weren't you listening? Do you want to become his disciples? Look at their reaction at verse 28. They reviled him and said, 
you are his disciple, but we are Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. This fellow, we do not. And the man answered and said, why, this is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he has opened my eyes. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God, he hears him. There's a good formula for prayer. Since the world began, he has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. He's teaching them theology. He's teaching the religious leaders theology. If, if this man were not from God, he could not do this. <laughs> now they're mad. They answered and said, you were completely born in sin and you're teaching us? You know, they're so offended. And then what's their reaction? Cast him out. It, you cannot stop the message, but they'll try to stop the messenger. They'll never stop the message. Jesus hears that he's been thrown out and he goes searching for him. And that's when he says he finds him. It's suggesting here the good shepherd that leaves the 99 and goes after the one. And that's why the next chapter opens about the good shepherd. He says, do you believe in God, the Son of God? He says, who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And here Jesus says, you have both seen him, and is he that's talking with you now? Then he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He gets physical sight, and he gets spiritual sight. You see how Jesus, it's beautiful, and it ties in with the book of Isaiah. Any closing thoughts? Any of this? So, that's, that's it, and then thanks again, Fred, for teaching next week, and then... Uh, then we'll go uh, hardcore into the suffering servant in, uh, when we get together again. And I also like to do at least half a session on Isaiah 58 about prayer and fasting and how powerful that is in our Christian lives today. It's all through the scripture. Any closing thoughts or anything at all? Oh, yes, please. What does that mean? What was the style of most of the prophets, like John the Baptist or Ezekiel? How did they come? They come and they're full blast. Jesus comes meek and, and mild. Oftentimes he doesn't even speak. You know, when people want to drag him into an argument, or he doesn't. But it speaks of his humility, his humbleness. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, he was God, but he took upon himself the form of a servant. Matter of fact, the last thing he'll do is uh, wash the feet of his apostles. I mean, that's like low, low, lowly. So if it, and don't forget, Isaiah uses poetic language. You know, he, he's... He's the, they call him the Shakespeare of the Old Testament. He's very poetic and metaphoric and all this other good stuff. Any other thing before we close in prayer? Okay. Who would like to close us then in a word of prayer, please? And pray for Matt and his family because they're going to make some big decisions here. And then, like I said, next week there'll be the reception. And thank everyone that's been bringing snacks. Uh, that's been really great. You know. Uh, uh, It's like I want, I do the thing at Joe's Daily and a couple of others. I always say if you don't like the teaching, you like the food. Okay. All right, who, who would like to close in a word of prayer? Please?